The scripture this morning is out of Romans chapter 9. It'll be verses 1 through 18. In my Bible, that is page 741, but I don't think that helps you guys very much. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, please, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. I normally do the announcements, and you don't have to stand for that, but this is a little bit more important than that. Okay. Romans 9, 1 through 18. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger." As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you all again for worship, uh, whether you're here in person or you're you're watching online. Um, it's just a blessing, blessing to be with you all. My, my soul desperately needs this uh, every single week, so I'm grateful that we're able to be here. My name is, is David Duran, and I am a church planning resident here at, at Doxa. And my family and I, we are prayerfully preparing to move to the South Shore region of Massachusetts to, to Lord willing, plant a healthy church in an area of the country that desperately needs more healthy churches. Uh, a study by uh, the Barna Group found that New England has the most post-Christian cities in the entire country. 
And you can, you can take that to basically mean that there is, there is a serious need for Christ-exalting churches and authentic Christian community in, in New England. And I mentioned, I mentioned that to you all this morning. Uh, first, because um, my family and I, we, we desperately desire your prayers. So please um, pray for us as often as we come to mind. But also, we have been praying that God uh, would call individuals and call families who would be willing to join us in this work. Maybe God is, is calling some of you in this room. Uh, maybe some of you who are, who are listening online. We need people who are willing to come and join our family, who are willing to make a great sacrifice for the sake of the gospel in New England. There is a great, great need for that. Um, the, sermon, the sermon this morning is not about church planting. It's not about uh, the Great Commission per se, but each time that I get an opportunity to, to stand before you, I just want to take just a minute and share with you the great burden that I have in my heart for Massachusetts and for New England at large. So this morning, we have, we have a passage of Scripture to look at that is often misunderstood. And because, because of this, because it's often misunderstood, it is typically misapplied. Now, before we even get into the passage this morning, I want to, I want to remind everyone here, in case you're, you're not sure or you've forgotten why we are here in the first place. We are here this morning to worship God. We worship him through song. We worship him as we sit under his word, and we worship him as we take communion together. Everything that we do this Sunday and everything that we do every Sunday that we're together it should be about the worship of God. So as we start to, to get into the sermon this morning, know that, that my aim is not to win some kind of theological debate. My aim is not to convince you that a particular piece of doctrine is true. Contrary to the belief that's held by, by some, predestination and election are not the main points of Romans chapter 9, although they're, they're certainly present in the chapter, and I'll be addressing these things this morning. Know that the main point of this great chapter of the Bible is God himself. God and his glory, his character, his purposes, those are the prominent themes of Romans 9. And my hope and my prayer this morning and, and throughout the week is that we will all be instructed in God's word this morning in a manner that will lead to a profound sense of worship. As I hinted at last week, but I think it's worth being more clear now, knowledge of, of biblical doctrine that has filled the head but not gripped the heart, that is useless. In fact, it's even, it's even dangerous Biblical knowledge and doctrine that does not change our hearts and influence our wills is a dangerous thing. It can lead to, to pride and arrogance and, and a pharisaical uh, spirit about us. And none of these things, none of these things, church, should be found in the people of God. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and ask that God would, would help us to understand this, this rich passage of Scripture in a way that that changes our hearts and, and leads us to truly worship God because that, that's what we're after this morning. 
So let's all pray together and then we'll, we'll dive into God's word. Father, we are swimming in the deep end of the theological pool this morning. Father, we, we need your help as we seek to understand what is here in your word. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help me to speak clearly, um, to be true to your word. Father, I pray that the result of this morning will be the worship of you, will be the, the uplifting of your son, the truth of the gospel. Father, I pray for that this morning. God, I pray that as we, as we dive deep uh, into this passage, Lord, God, I pray that our minds will not become distracted um, in all the, the nuances of what Paul is saying here, Lord, but I, I pray that you'll help us to focus. God, I pray as the, the theology becomes very rich that we won't glaze over, but that we'll work hard at listening to what you are saying this morning. Lord Jesus, we love you. Please help us now. Cut us deep with your truth. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't already and you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. Give you just a second to get there if you're not already. It looks like most of us have it pulled up or we can get there pretty quick, quick on our phones. Um, just a second, you'll, just a second we'll, we'll get into it here. So as, as, we, as we begin looking at Romans 9 this morning, we are entering into uh, the next great section of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, remember last week, as we looked at Romans 8, we saw that nothing in all creation can separate Christians from the love of Christ. Nothing in all creation can separate those who belong to God from his love. And that separation, if you remember, that separation is impossible because of Christ's death in our place. But that, that reality, that truth, it brings up an important question that the original hearers of Paul's letter would be, be asking, they'd be thinking about this. And, and really it's a question that all of us who have read through the Old Testament, we should be asking as well. And that question is, what about the Israelites? What about the Jews, the people who the, the Old Testament clearly demonstrated and, and clearly demonstrates are God's chosen people? Remember Deuteronomy chapter 7, specifically verse 6, where talking about the Jewish people, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You see, the, the majority of the Jews have not responded in faith to the gospel. So does that mean that God's promise has failed? Does that mean that God somehow has failed? You see, in Rome at this time, there was a, a controversy going on over the, the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. And, and really, this controversy was, it was taking place uh, all over. Paul, the, the former Jewish leader turned Christian missionary, he is caught right in the middle of this. And, and Roman Christians, they're, they're in the middle of this as well. 
Romans chapter 9 all the way through 11 is, is really Paul's way of harmonizing the Old and the New Testament. Paul is trying to unite the Roman Christians behind his vision of the gospel and its implications for the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And remember, Gentiles are just non-Jewish people. It seems that the people promise so much, it seems that they've been cast aside. And Paul is going to show that that is not the case. Now, I give you that little bit of context this morning because I think it'll help you to get a clearer picture of what's going on here and of what is being said as we work through uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11. So look with me, with me now here again at Romans 9, 1 through 6. I'm going to read it for us again. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Some people who are very passionate about this chapter of the Bible, they, they miss the importance of these first few verses here. Look, look at the evangelistic heart of the Apostle Paul. Look at the way he feels about his fellow people who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says he has, has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart towards this people. His heart breaks for his fellow kinsmen who do not know Christ. And Paul's, Paul's uh, his grief over Israel, it's, it's similar to how the prophets of the Old Testament would lament over, over Israel. So in, in describing his sorrow over the, the coming devastation of Judah, the prophet Jeremiah, he expresses his grief in this way in Jeremiah 4.19. He says, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Pa Paul here, he's expressing this, this same kind of sorrow and this lament for people who have rejected Christ. Paul even goes so far to say that he could wish that he himself were accursed for the sake of this people. What love, what love the Apostle Paul has for people who do not know Christ. The grief he feels in his heart because his fellow Jews have not embraced the gospel. Doxa Church, let me ask you a question this morning. Do you feel the same kind of anguish and sorrow for those around you who have not embraced Christ and are on their way to hell? Are we, like the Apostle Paul, grieved to our core because there are, are so many people around us who have not embraced the gospel? Do our hearts break for our, our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, and our friends? Are we grieved by the fact that there are thousands of people groups representing millions and even, even billions of people who have never even heard the gospel. I'm afraid that many of us, we've become so distracted that we, we never even think about the people around us who are far from Christ. 
Satan, he's, he's distracted us with the cares of this world and we forget the tremendous spiritual need that is around us. Paul, his, his willingness here to, to even sacrifice himself for Israel is similar to Moses back in Exodus 32. The people have sinned greatly against the Lord and Moses says, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. I don't want to speak for anyone else in this room or anyone else who is, who is watching online, but I want to have that same kind of anguish, that same kind of sorrow in my heart for people far from Christ the way that Paul does for his people. We should all pray that we as a church would be people that, that burn with passion to see lost people embrace the gospel. Pastor um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he put it this way, and I, I want to read this quick quote for you because I thought it, it was really powerful. He says, there is no better test of our spiritual state and condition than our missionary zeal, our concern for lost souls. That is always the thing that divides people who are just theoretical and intellectual Christians from those who have a living and vital spiritual life. May we at Doxa never be a bunch of theoretical Christians. We should all pray that we would be a body of believers that has a, a living and a vibrant spiritual life. Now I must say, I must say that my heart, my heart still has a long way to go in this area, but I'm, I'm grateful the way that God has, how, how far he's brought me in terms of a, a genuine desire to see people embrace the gospel. And, and one thing that has always inspired me that the Lord has used uh, in my life in addition to, to reading the Bible is great missionary biographies. There's, there's something about seeing and reading about others' desire to see people far from Christ uh, come to embrace him. That, that's inspired me and that's motivated me. God has used uh, stories of people like Adoniram Judson, Amy Carmichael, John G. Patton, uh, reading their stories has encouraged me so much. And if, if you feel like you've become uh, indifferent or, or even uh, hardened in your evangelistic zeal, I encourage you first, read your Bible, but also consider picking up a good uh, biography on a Christian who has, who has burned with a desire for the lost. Now, Part of the reason that Paul is so grieved for the Israelites, he's grieved for the Jews, is because these, these were people who were set aside by God for blessing and service. Notice in verse 4 where Paul writes, They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And we don't have time this morning to go into what each of those things mean that, that Paul describes here. But know that each, each of those things that belong to the, to the Israelites, um, those things are, are noteworthy. They are, are vitally important in showing the significance of the Jewish people. But you see, there, there is a turn of events that has now taken place. Most of the Israelites have failed to, or, or I'm sorry, most of the Israelites who, who received the promise of salvation have refused to recognize the, the fulfillment of that promise. And that fulfillment is Jesus, the Messiah. Paul makes it, it very clear that Jesus is the Christ and that he's the Messiah in the last part of verse 5. I'm going to read that, that again for us. Verse 5, it says, To them belong the patriarchs, 
and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. If you're here today, here this morning, and you are, are not a Christian, or maybe you you found this on Facebook and, and you're watching and you know you know nothing of the Christian faith, what Paul says here in verse 5, that is at the core of Christianity. We believe that Jesus is God over all. We believe that Jesus is worthy of all of our affection and all of our worship. And we who are Christians, we have devoted our lives to following him. If you're curious about Christianity or what it means to be a Christian, please hang out for a few minutes after the service and, and talk to someone. Um, I, I would love to talk with you if you're here today and you're, you're curious about what, what that means. Or if you're watching online, maybe post something in, in the comments. I'm sure someone, someone will be there and would love to, to get back to you. So kind of back, back to where we're at. The Israelites have failed to recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of the promise of salvation. And now it is the Gentiles who are embracing Jesus. So imagine yourself, you're here and you're kind of watching all of this, this play out. And it, it might seem like God is not being faithful to the people he chose. It appears that God's promise that Israel will be saved has actually failed. And that brings us to the thesis of, of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Look at the first half of verse 6 again with me. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You see, God's, God's promises have not failed because God never promised that every ethnic Israelite would be saved. The Jews who are looking to their, to their birthright and to their heritage for security and for salvation, they are mistaken. And Paul started to hint at this back in Romans chapter 2. Listen to Romans 2, 28 and 29 here. It says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What Paul is saying here, and Jesus actually gets at the same thing in John chapter 8. What they're saying is belonging to God's true spiritual people is not based on your heritage. It's not based on your religious tradition or anything else like that. Young people who may be listening this morning in this room or maybe watching online, you're not a Christian just because your parents believe. You're not a follower of Jesus just because maybe your, your granddad was a pastor or because you sit in a worship service every Sunday. Don't assume that the spiritual state of those around you, and, and, or don't look at that and assume that you're, you're automatically in the, in the same place because that is not the case. That is part of what Paul is saying here, what he's alluding to when he says, not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are ethnically Jewish belong to the people of God. So that brings, that brings us to an important question. Who exactly is the Israel whom salvation has been promised? We are now at a point in our passage where Paul, he has to explain why certain individuals, why some individuals are not being saved. We're going to look, look at verse 8 here. And after noting that 
after noting God's choice to uniquely bless Isaac and not Ishmael, although they were both sons of Abraham, Paul writes this. He says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. God never promised that all ethnic Israelites would belong to the true people of God. And here, here is the big point. Here's what, what Paul is getting at. Most ethnic Jews, although certainly not all, but most ethnic Jews, most Jews are not the recipients of God's saving promise. And that is why they have refused to believe in Jesus as Lord. You see, participation and belonging to the family of God, it comes as a result of God's call. And there are two Old Testament examples here in our text that prove that. Both the example of God choosing Isaac over Ishmael and the example of God choosing his choosing of Jacob and not Esau. And just so, and just so we're on the same page, um, I think Paul is talking about the salvation of individuals here. Verses 1 through 5 of Romans 9, they frame the discussion. And, and Paul is talking about the salvation of a, of a group of people, which of course are made up of, indi- of individuals. Why are some saved and others are not? Why are some counted as children of the promise and others are not? Here's why. Because God in his wisdom and God in his kindness has chosen to save some. God in his mercy has elected some for salvation. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Friends, this this can be a difficult statement for us to understand. In fact, it's, it's one of the most difficult statements to understand in all of the Bible. And I don't, I don't want you to beat yourself up if you're having trouble uh, understanding what's being said here because it is difficult. Um, but at the same time, we should not give up trying to understand uh, difficult things in, script, in Scripture just because they're difficult. You see, God's, God's plan has unfolded in the Old and the New Testament by a series of choices he has made. Jacob was chosen by God, and the redemptive love of God was set on Jacob. The hate, the hate of Esau here, it, it denotes God's decision not to choose him. This is not about emotions, but it's about actions. And the next, the next statement that I'm going to make, it may seem a little bit paradoxical to you, but the Bible states that God loves the whole world and at the same time he withholds his election or his love in action from some. And we find this reality stated throughout scripture. Now I also want to make this point very clear to you this morning. There is a balance that takes place throughout scripture concerning God's sovereignty in salvation and human responsibility. God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. He is the author of salvation. But we also must insist on the responsibility of the individual to believe. A biblical understanding of election, it never lessens human responsibility. 
Jesus in Mark 1.15, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Peter, in his famous Pentecost sermon, he tells the people to repent and be baptized. Human responsibility to believe is very much a reality. And, and the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, it's ultimately a mystery. And it's beyond our ability to, to comprehend fully. But friends, listen, if you take your time and you carefully read your Bible, you will see that God is sovereign in salvation and we must insist on the responsibility of individuals to believe. If you spend any time like really diving into to election and predestination as described here in Romans, Romans 9, you'll find that many scholars insist that this passage, it's not about uh, individual salvation, but it's about the destiny of nations. Both Jacob and Esau, they do represent uh, two peoples and their historical destiny. We see that in Genesis 25. We, can, we, we see that there. But that view, it ignores that this passage is about the, the historical, or let me, let me back up here. That view that this passage here is about the historical destinies of groups of people, remember, it ignores the context of Romans 9, which at the beginning we see it is addressing the salvation of individuals. Jacob, Jacob was chosen by God before he was born, not on the basis of foreseen faith. God did not choose Jacob for salvation because God knew that one day Jacob would choose him in faith. Faith is not the basis for God's election. If that was the case, surely Paul would have, would have mentioned this somewhere in, in noting God's choice of Jacob over Esau. Paul, he would have said something about God choosing Jacob on the basis of foreseen faith, but that, that is not mentioned in our text. Paul bases election in what God does and not in anything that humans do. Uh, St. Augustine, he summarized this, this teaching by saying this, and I think it's helpful. He said, God chooses us that we may believe. And I remember, I remember the first time that I came across this teaching about God's sovereignty and salvation, the thing that Paul's talking about here in Romans 9. And I was actually, I was reading through a book that was discussing this, and I thought the guy who was explaining this was absolutely out of his mind. Maybe like some of you think about me right now, I'm not sure. I had never heard anything like this, and, and I was sure that, that what he was explaining could not be correct. I was, I was confident that the ultimate reason for my salvation was that I had chosen to believe. I believe that God had made my salvation possible, but the reason that I was a Christian, if I was going to be honest, was ultimately and decisively because of me. And that was the assumption that I had had the entire time I had been a Christian, which had been about 10 years or so at this point. But as I was reading through, through this book, and um, I begin to see over and over again, and, and throughout Scripture, that God is the one who is decisive in salvation. God really has uh, elected not all people, but a people for salvation. Faith is a gift from God, and there, there's a very real sense in which we act on that. But we will, never, we will never repent and believe 
unless God does the work to overcome our rebellious hearts. Brothers and sisters, I want to reiterate that I understand that this is, uh, this is a difficult passage to understand. And Christians reach, reach different conclusions on this. Um, but it's difficult, especially when we consider that God chooses to save some and not others. But all we're trying to do here this morning is understand what, what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, Paul, he rightly anticipates the objection that, that we would all be tempted to have at the teaching he's giving here in Romans 9. And that, that objection would probably go something like this. How can any of this be? That just seems so unjust on the part of God. Let's look again at verses 14 through 18. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Stay with me here. Stay with me here for a second. I know, I know this is heavy, but please, please stay with me. God is not unrighteous in election because as the standard for righteousness, he is not compromising his character. A basic characteristic of God is his freedom. God is free to act as he sees fit. And his, his bestowing of mercy is not dependent on the individual. Friends, God, he doesn't owe anyone. He doesn't owe any of us anything. In reality, the only thing he owes us is punishment because we have rebelled against him. Oh, but God, God is so gracious and loving to extend forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. And everyone, hear this, everyone who trusts in Christ for salvation, they will be saved. I'm going to repeat that again because we could be tempted to misunderstand that as we look at this. And Paul's even going to reiterate this in Romans 10, but we're not there yet. He says, everyone who trusts in Christ for salvation will be saved. Now, real quickly, I want to point out for you just three wonderful truths that come from a biblical understanding of election. Now, there, there have been countless books that have written about some of the things that we've talked about this morning. You, could, you really could fill a library with the books that have been written, written on this. Um, and believe me, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of areas in our passage that we just we don't have time to dig, dig deeply into this morning. But in light of what we have talked about concerning God's sovereignty and salvation, I have just three things that I, three things specifically that I want you to remember this morning. So three, three points here. First, because God is sovereign in salvation, we should have extreme devotion and confidence in evangelism. I'll say that again. Because God is sovereign in salvation, we should have extreme devotion and confidence in evangelism. You may be tempted to think that the opposite would actually be true. You may think that election in the way that we're talking about it, that it, it quells evangelism. That's not the case. Both the Apostle Paul and others throughout history show us 
that this, this isn't true. Paul, he traveled throughout the Mediterranean, Mediterranean, sharing the gospel and planting churches. William Carey, the father of modern missions, who was a, a missionary in India for decades, he was convinced that God is the decisive one in salvation. Brothers and sisters, when you begin to understand that it is God who saves sinners and not sinners who save themselves, I promise you, you will feel so much more a freedom when it comes to your evangelism. You start to feel less pressure that you have to convince someone that the gospel is true. Instead, you start to have, have confidence in your evangelism because you know that God is going to save those who are his. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't thoughtful and we aren't persuasive when we share our faith, but we can trust that God is capable of softening even the hardest of hearts. God's sovereignty in the salvation of individuals based on his, uh, his choice to save, it should give us a passion and a confidence in our evangelism. Second thing, because God is sovereign in salvation, we who are Christians should have a profound sense of humility. Because God is sovereign in salvation, we who are Christians should have a profound sense of humility. The fact that God would choose to have mercy and compassion on any of us is absolutely astounding. Remember, he doesn't owe, he doesn't owe us anything. The fact that he would choose to save and redeem any human beings speaks to his great love. And those of us who are here this morning who are Christians, we should know more than anyone else how unworthy we are of the gift of salvation. We should understand greater than anyone else how much we have dishonored God. But we also, we know the love of God in a special and unique way. And we desire for those far from God to experience that same thing. Colossians 3.12, this is Paul again. He writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Friends, if you've been, if you've been saved by God, your countenance should be one of, of humility and kindness, not arrogance and smugness. Third point here. Finally, because God is sovereign in salvation, we who trust in Christ should continually offer heartfelt praise to God. I know that was a bit of a long one. I'll read it again here. Because God is sovereign in salvation, we who trust in Christ should continually offer heartfelt praise to God. Brothers and sisters, we, we bring nothing to our salvation. I'm going to say that again. We, we bring nothing to our salvation. God saves us. God removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He gives us the gift of faith, and he doesn't, he doesn't give this gift to everyone. This gift is extended. It's offered to all people, but only those whom God has chosen to be able to see the beauty of the gift, those are the ones who truly receive it. And praise Brothers and sisters, praise should be on our lips from morning until night because God in his great mercy has saved us. We do not save ourselves. 
Had we not been chosen, we would never have believed. And this should move, move every one of us who are Christians to offer heartfelt praise to God this morning. In just a minute here, we're going to take, take communion together. And all of us who are Christians, we're going to, to celebrate what Jesus accomplished for us. Jesus, he didn't just make our salvation possible. He secured it for us on the cross. And belonging to God's true spiritual people, it is based on God's, his effectual call. And it's not ultimately dependent on any activity of the recipient. Belonging as one of God's people, it's not dependent on us. But we do demonstrate that we belong to God when we trust in Christ for salvation. What praise, friends, what praise should well up in us when we understand that God is the one who saves? The goal of election is the glory and the praise of God. That's the goal, the glory and the praise of God. Please don't misunderstand that or get that construed in any different, different way. So as we prepare to come and take uh, communion this morning, Let's remember that Christ has saved us. Christ has redeemed us. And one day he's coming back to gather all who are his. And I pray as we, as we go out this week that we would have, we would have a, a zeal within us to see more people come into the family of God.